0: Welcome to Junior L's and Now What, Episode 6. Last week, I introduced you to a topic without really introducing you to it. At the very least, I didn't give it a name. However, I did introduce it using six illustrations with a couple of minor illustrations at the end. During this podcast, I'm going to take those introductions and those illustrations and migrate them over into defining this topic. Once again, without actually giving it the name that it is. However, so that I don't have to keep referring to it in the abstract, I'm going to give it a name that rather fits my approach. And the name is Enigma Alpha. I am going to define Enigma Alpha using seven bastions or pillars. I will refer to them as the seven bastions of Enigma Alpha. Back in my previous episode, I used four illustrations for the first bastion. Illustration one is the moon, and I gave the example that if you were teaching a class full of people who had never seen the moon, would you be capable of proving to them with physical or substantial evidence that the moon actually exists. I also use the illustration that uh, color, each person sees things a little bit differently. Is it possible to prove to another person that they are seeing or that you are seeing the exact same thing in the exact same way as someone else? The third example is the anime Sword Art Online that I've now mentioned a few times, where the person who created the game enters into the city center with the 10,000 or so folks that are alive at this point in the game and says, by the way, if you die in this game, you die in real life. Once again, is it possible to prove that that's the case? And the fourth illustration I gave for this first bastion is the idea of numbers. Can numbers really go on infinitely? And if they can, can you prove it? Can you find the end or lack thereof in the number string? So my first bastion for this is the idea of the inability to prove anything in a tangible way. We can all try, and we all have tried, to prove something tangibly. However, I'm going to make the argument in a rather um, paradoxical sort of way that I would like to prove that it is impossible to prove anything. Bastion number one, inability to prove anything, at least tangible evidence-wise. The second uh, bastion is going to refer to the Frodo and Gandalf scenario from Lord of the Rings. This goes to the idea that if Gandalf came to Frodo and said, hey, guess what? You know that ring you've got that was your kind of adopted father's ring and it's super powerful, can make you invisible and allow you to do some pranks and stuff? Yes, I'm mimicking his accent perfectly, by the way. Well, you know, it needs to go to this volcano and be thrown into destroyed, or the evil Lord Sauron is going to take over the world and wipe us all out. Well, what if Frodo kind of went, yeah, cool, okay, thanks, and then just kind of hung out at home and, and did nothing with this information? Well, in both a literal and metaphorical sense, it would have been the death of both that information and probably ultimately Frodo himself. So the second bastion of this is action. It must be acted upon. I've used the illustration of the moon and the constant motion and its effect on the earth and how we're constantly in motion anyway. So in action or action, there's still movement happening. You're either going up or you're going down. You're either for or you're, you're against. There is no such thing as neutrality here. For the second bastion, it must be acted upon. All right, so the third and fourth bastions go hand in hand. The third one, I'll tell you outright, is questioning is a good thing. In fact, I would even argue, back to the four eyes, that questioning is imperative. However, a warning, this is something that's been on my mind for some time now, and I think I finally have the ability to put words to it. If you are questioning with the intent to prove or disprove something, I would define that as pride, because if you're proving or disproving something or that's your intent in questioning, then you're making an assumption that you already know, that you possess the truth already. You possess the facts. If, on the other hand, when you question, you are seeking to understand, then I would define that as humility. Because you're opening yourself up to the possibility that you may be right or that you may be wrong. But in either case, you're open to questions and answers and suggestions with the realization that you are not omniscient. For those of you who don't know, that means to know everything. That is very important when seeking for information. The fourth element, which I will not immediately define, I'm going to use a handful of illustrations for. So I'll try to get through these as quickly as I can. The first illustration I had the most fun researching because it's something I'd heard about but never really dug into. There is a society of people out there or multiple societies of people out there that I will refer to as the flat earthers. These are people who don't believe that the Earth is a globe, an orb, a ball or ball-ish shape, and that we orbit around the sun the way that you know astrophysicists and people back to you know Aristotle and etcetera, all believed. And no, I don't know my history that well, so it's very possible I'm dropping some inaccurate names here. But you get the idea. During my research, I discovered that this concept or the recent uh, resurrection of this concept goes back to 1838. There was a man by the name of Samuel Burley Robotham, I'm totally going to butcher his name, who performed an experiment they refer to as the Bedford Level Experiment. And ultimately what he was doing is he was telling the world that he had proven that the world was flat and that it was not round. So I'm not going to go into all the details. If you ever get a moment to look it up, it's rather fascinating little study, but the flat earth society or societies believe that uh, and there's a certain conspiracy element to it, that all these taxpayer dollars that are going into people flying up into space and taking pictures all of that's BS. It's not accurate. It's never happened, and they're just trying to mislead, misguide, and fool us. There's also a certain element that we don't really understand the the sciences behind it. So, as part of this illustration for this third bath or this fourth bastion, is this idea that the science that the flat earthers are using, and I will admit before I go any further, I only understand a fraction of what they believe and understand, because I have not spent an intense amount of time studying it, nor am I omniscient and understand all of physics, astrophysics, chemistry, biology, et cetera. But I have a decent enough understanding to realize that the sciences that the flat earthers are using is dead end, meaning it is attempting to support or prove something. Whereas with the rest of the world that believes that the world is round, that particular element of physics is building upon itself. I mentioned in my last podcast this idea that during medieval times, things got stale. There was very little progress made, especially in the world of science. One of the interesting things to tidbit or to realize during that time is that a lot of people believed the earth was flat. And then, In and around the 1400s, there was this kind of this awakening, we refer to it as the Renaissance, when art, science, uh, people, uh, humanity began to evolve and to change. And one of the things that was adopted was this idea that the earth spun around the sun instead of the sun spinning around the earth, and that the earth was a globe as opposed to flat. And the list goes on. And it's interesting how... Part of this event was a series of events, not one thing by itself, but a conglomeration of many things that all transpired together. All right, so the next piece of this fourth bastion is the concept of chain mail. Now, this is not to be confused with the email chain mail that absolutely everyone hates. This is the medieval chain mail, where people refer to it as link mail, so it's really tiny rings. For those people who do know me personally— It is one of the few things that I can say that I started and finished on my own with an incredible amount of time dedicated to it. I wove a chainmail vest. It is made out of electric fence wire. I spent 12 years making it. It's got around 50,000 links put on one at a time. It weighs about 30-ish pounds, and I wear it once or twice a year to more or less show it off because, you know, what's the point of making something that big without having a chance to show it off? The reason I bring this up is the concept of chain mail is that each individual link is pretty weak. I have the capacity to bend the links with my fingers. I don't because I cherish my fingers and I don't want to ruin them after bending that many links. I use pliers. But the point is, is they're individually weak. But the more of them you put together, the more they support each other. So that if you were in battle and you were struck by something like a crossbow bolt, each individual link would not be capable of withstanding that impact. But when that impact happens, the links work together and create almost like a wave effect where they work together to tighten and to resist and to fight. And they actually become stronger. So strong, in fact, that they can do some things that plate mail, which is kind of the big shiny armor that you see in a lot of like the artistry from the medieval times, can't do. Okay, So once again, this is the concept of growth and feeding off of each other. The next element to this is Neptune. So for those of you who don't know, Neptune was discovered in 1846. It was not created in 1846. It was discovered in 1846. And after it was discovered, Neptune, because of as far away as it is from the sun, takes a long time to go around the sun. So around 2011 in July is when Neptune was supposed to basically make its first revolution around the sun since 1846. Once again, I'm not omniscient, so I really hope I'm not wrong on this, but from my research, this is what I've discovered. If you were to look up in the sky and see exactly where Neptune had been in the sky back in 1846, now we're in 2011, you would not see Neptune there, which doesn't make a lot of sense because, hey, we're orbiting around the sun. It's kind of this spherical-ish orbit that all the planets have. So does this mean that Neptune doesn't exist? Does this mean we've been wrong all along? Have we disproven this theory? One of the things that I have mentioned throughout the course of most of my podcasts is this idea of the barycenter. Look it up if you get some time. It is the relationship or the midpoint between two masses. So the barycenter between the moon and the earth is a little off the core of the earth. The barycenter between Jupiter and the sun is slightly outside of the sun. Well, because of the barycenter effect... The Earth isn't exactly in the same location as it relates to Neptune, as it had been back in 1846, nor is Neptune in exactly the same location. So if you were to look at the sky at the exact same location, you wouldn't see it. That's not because you're necessarily wrong. It's because you are missing a piece of information. Okay. All right. The next piece of this is bone density. As your body puts force on your bones, your bones naturally get denser. So that's one of the reasons why gravity on Earth is so important to our bone density. I think there was a movie that came out not too long ago about a person who was born in space and uh, or on another planet, and they had too little bone density so they couldn't live on Earth, blah, blah, blah. The science says is that if you are an astronaut and you are in space, your bone density actually reduces by 1% every month. Okay, so if you think about it for a while, if you're up there for 12 months, your bone density has the potential to reduce 12 percent. That's kind of scary if you think about it, because if you come back down to Earth after your bone density is reduced by 12 percent, you got to be kind of careful. This is all going to make sense in a minute. At least that's my hope and my dream. All right. Mathematics. This is the last piece of this fourth bastion that I'm going to share Mathematics is something that someone shared to me once. I find mathematics beautiful. It is the language of purity. Theoretically, you could speak any language on Earth and may not be able to understand anyone else who's speaking any other language on Earth. But if you both spoke math, you should still be able to understand each other. It's the universal language. One of the things that makes math so unique is that it is an independent science. It requires no other science to exist. It can grow and it can shrink in and of itself. It can, to one extent or another, validate and invalidate itself. However, that is not true for any other science. All other sciences require math to be described, to be defined. However, it's interesting to note that to apply mathematics, you need all of the other sciences. Because you can't really apply it to itself. Because it's almost more of a theory and a language than it is a physical entity. One of the other interesting things is that as you apply mathematics to, say, a field of physics, you can take that, and as you learn about it, you're actually in turn learning more about math. And the more you learn about math, the more you'll understand the other sciences, and the more you understand the other sciences, the more you learn about math. These illustrations help define this fourth bastion, which is, it must grow and enhance itself. And everything else it touches. In the first illustration, the Flat Earth societies or societies, they support this science that doesn't appear, at least from my perspective, to enhance itself or anything else for that matter. It's ultimately trying to prove or disprove something. Chainmail, it is by nature enhancing everything around it. And by nature, or um, by consequence, enhancing itself. The, The reason I brought up the concept of Neptune is that you looked up in the sky and you couldn't see something that should have been there. Does that prove you were wrong? Not necessarily. What it could prove is that you just didn't understand enough. In fact, one of the things about the flat earthers, about the experiments that I was sharing earlier, is that after the experiment was done... It kind of forced people to start really looking at some of the sciences that support the idea that the Earth is not flat. And they began to realize things about the way light works and the way things are as you get closer to the surface of the Earth versus farther away from the Earth. And the way light bends and there's refraction and atmosphere and other various things. So was the experiment bad? Absolutely not. Is questioning the status quo bad? Absolutely not. But once again, are you looking to prove and disprove, or are you looking to understand? I mentioned the bone density as an illustration of the combination of sciences, how one science is helping support the other and in turn helping each of them grow collectively as well as independently through their knowledge and understanding. We're combining physics and biology as we're understanding bone density and how it changes from here on Earth, versus if you're in space. And once again with the math, as we've already illustrated, is that as you understand math as it applies to physics, and physics knowledge enhances, it en- enhances your knowledge of math, which enhances your knowledge of the other sciences and vice versa, and it grows. Quick summary, the, the third bastion of the Enigma Alpha is questioning is good, But being cautious. And the fourth bastion is it must grow, enhance itself, and everything it touches. All right. So the fifth bastion, I am going to go back to the illustration I made last week as it pertains to my English teacher. I recognize that I was rather negative about him. And I can't necessarily say I would retract any of that because, well, I didn't much care for him and his attitude. Having said that, his lessons that he taught, the information that he shared were valuable and they have definitely positively influenced me. The second illustration that ties to this before I state it is actually one of our beloved physicists who was actually German, who uh, later came to America right before World War II. And that was Albert Einstein. Now, I'm not going to call Albert Einstein a good guy or a bad guy. But I would like to present something that I have learned about him recently to, once again, kind of judge the character of the person, which goes back to this bastion we're talking about right now, bastion number five, that Albert Einstein had a son. He actually had a few. And one of his sons, his name was Edward, I believe. Uh, this, This son, Edward, he was schizophrenic. Now, he didn't get diagnosed with this until later. He was actually quite brilliant. As far as historians can tell, as far as I can tell from my research, he was most likely, out of Einstein's children, to be like him, at least in sheer intellect. However, when he got into college, he had a breakdown, multiple breakdowns, in fact. And he ended up going to a mental ward, mental institution, a, a place to help take care of him. And they did some things to try to help him, which, again, historians say probably made things worse. Needless to say, he was schizophrenic. At the outbreak of World War II or slightly before it, around 1933, Albert Einstein took his family or some of his family to America to escape the Nazis. And this particular son, the one with schizophrenia, he left behind in Europe. He left him there. And before he left, he visited him one last time. 1933 one last time, said goodbye to that son and then came here to America. That son died in 1965, which is around 20 years after World War II ended. And yet Albert Einstein never visited him again. So once again, I am not calling Albert Einstein a good guy or a bad guy. But from a perspective of character and from being a parent myself, I struggle with the idea that he did not visit his son ever again. Now think about that for a minute, judging character. Now, I don't know all the circumstances around the situation. I don't know if he was maybe forbidden to. But the point I'm trying to make with both of these two situations, these illustrations, is that you cannot judge the information necessarily based off of the source. Now, is the source that comes from good or bad? Relevant or relevant? I would argue it's definitely important. It's definitely relevant. Is it, however, defining whether the information is good or, good or bad by itself? And I think that it's fairly apparent, given the fact we've gotten lots of information from some very tragic events through time, that the source of information does not necessarily connotate whether the information itself is good or bad. So, bastion number five is the source is important, but it does not determine whether the information is good or bad. The discovery is good or bad. Bastion number six. Let's assume for the moment that Frodo, who loved his uh, adopted father, Bilbo, was visited by Gandalf. Gandalf comes to him and says, hey, your, uh, your, step, uh, your adopted father, he has his magical ring. And it was created by this really, really, really terrible wizard who wants to conquer and destroy this world. And, well, before he goes any further, Frodo stops him. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. There is no way that ring is evil. Bilbo is an amazing human being, and I need you to get out right now. Okay. So the point I'm making with this illustration as well as With the flat earthers and everything that I have said about them in this podcast, is that whether I am right or wrong, whether Gandalf was right or wrong, if the person chooses to say, Well, I don't agree with that, or I'm offended by what you say, does that change whether the discovery or the information is right or wrong? I would definitely say. It does not, because information is independent of opinion. Truth is arguably independent of opinion. Bastion number six is whether you agree or whether you're offended does not change whether or not it is right or wrong. Now, the seventh bastion is, in my opinion, my favorite and the most important, and that is the idea of the trifecta of peace. It's one of the reasons why I held off this topic, this Enigma Alpha until now, is because I wanted to present the idea of peace earlier so that this could be discussed here. The trifecta of peace is this. Does it have the potential to bring you peace? To bring those that you know, love, family, friends, peace. And finally, those that you either perceive or perceive you as an enemy. Does it have the potential to bring them peace? Probably the hardest of them all. For this illustration, I'm going to use Sword Art Online. In Sword Art Online, there were 10,000 people in this game. There's a handful of them that you're going to follow as the main characters, as the heroes. But there are definitely people in this game, not just monsters in the game. There are players who, what they call um, uh, PKers, player killers. Whether or not they truly believe that if you died in the game, you died in real life or not, doesn't change the fact that some of them intentionally chose to kill other players. So as the main characters are going throughout the game, they are told that they have to beat all 100 levels of the game to win. So some of the characters take it upon themselves to basically save the rest of the players by sacrificing it all to win. Are they doing it for glory? Maybe. But are they ultimately doing it so that they can save those they know, save those they love, even save themselves? And whether they're doing it intentionally or not, They are saving their enemies or those that perceive them as enemies. So they are attaining the trifecta of peace or the potential for peace. Sometimes in this mortality, we view things through the scope of, will I be able to find happiness here and now? Will I be able to find peace here and now? I use the terminology, the potential for peace for very, very specific reasons. This mortality is far too short to try to get everything packed into it. All the happiness, all the joy, all the misery, all the sorrow. There's definitely more beyond, and therefore that potential for peace has got to take into account not just the now but the hereafter. And now, it quick summary of the seven bastions of the Enigma Alpha. Bastion number one is it cannot be tangibly proven. Bastion number two, is it must be acted upon. Bastion number three, it is imperative that we ask questions. Bastion number four, is that it must grow, enhance itself, and enhance everything it touches. Bastion number five, is the source of the discovery or information is important but it doesn't change whether it is right or wrong. Bastion number six, whether you agree with it or are offended by it, does not change whether it is right or wrong. And the final bastion is the trifecta of peace, the potential for peace for you, those you know and love, and those that you that perceive you or that you perceive as enemies. After this podcast, I encourage you to go through these seven bastions And try to determine two things. Number one, do they ultimately lead to what you perceive as good? And is it possible? Do they have the potential to lead to the trifecta of peace? Thank you for listening. Have a spectacular week. Smile, be happy. You're worth it. This life is worth it. This world as round and glorious as it is, is a beautiful and spectacular place to be. And remember that Chuck Norris can speak Braille.